Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. This is uh, week two, podcast two, whatever we want to call it. Week or podcast two, either one, I guess. It's not a week podcast though. It is not. It is not a week podcast. So W-E-A-K. So that's equivocation, isn't it? Uh, so it, this is strong podcast number two <laughs> in the gospel of John. Heavy. Yeah, heavy. Uh, and so we're going to continue talking just about overviews on how to read the gospels as we're doing that uh, so far. And we're cruising all the way through John. And I should say, I don't know if you checked, Rob, but uh, in the podcast, at least in the Apple podcast, uh, there have been a couple of reviews. Good. So people are, are heeding our instruction Very good. Uh, for this cult. They were good we're reviews, right? We don't have to go hunting them down. They actually though. were. We, well, it's the people we paid. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. So it's my, <laughs> so, wife, my wife and my daughter. And my mom, yeah. <laughs> and so mom, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but we really encourage you, please leave a review in your podcast app, five star, and that just helps get it into circulation more. But and anyway, if you don't like it, go on somebody else's podcast yes. and give a review for them. That is a great idea. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> anyway, let's get into John. Um, yeah. In the previous episode, we talked about how John is just really different from mm-hmm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are commonly known as the synoptics. And that has the idea of those are just similar in, in their construction and how they right. read. I know that the early church, uh, especially you get a tr- what, what's known as a church father. These are per- people who lived in the you know 100s and 200s. They, they try to figure out and explain like, hey, why are these differences happening between John and these other guys? you know, these other gospels, but what are some of the difference between John and the synoptics and how should we understand that relation between those things? Yeah. And that's probably the, one of the things that helps us understand the gospel of John is understanding its relationship to what we call the synoptics and again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they seem to be so much similar. The idea of one being a spiritual gospel though, which unfortunately is actually kind of made its way into the modern day vernacular mm-hmm. as well that's just an ancient Platonism and Neoplatonism that kind of in the, in the day that eventually evolved where the spiritual and physical and these. Well, but, I, I was even going to say, if anything, it's the anti-spiritual gospel, yeah, because right. one of the things that John is probably doing, I forget if we're getting that to tonight, but he's arguing against what happens in this, what we would call a Gnostic movement that eventually happens after this, where it's this idea that the, the material is bad and evil and right. the immaterial and the spiritual is the good thing. And so this is why John's making a lot of points that he makes. It's like, no, he like, Hey, he, he tells the Thomas story that no one else told, like, right. Hey, put, put your, put your fingers into these wounds or Hey, like, why is Jesus eating after the resurrection and that sort of thing? Yeah. I'm not personally convinced. I used to be that G- that John's kind of dealing with a proto Gnosticism. Okay. I don't think it's there yet. It's definitely to, not developed. At it's that not point. developed, no. certainly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I don't even think we read first, second, and third John that way, which is commonly thought. Yeah, that's very common. Yeah, that, that we do. Uh, but nonetheless, the idea that John's presenting Jesus as the one on whom God has manifested His presence in, and the idea that John's gospel has Jesus as God and Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, and Luke don't, and this is no Matthew, Mark, and Luke no. do. They certainly do. Yeah, Jesus is the one who walks on the seas. He's the one who says silence to the seas. The disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But John definitely wrote later. And because he wrote later, I think there's no question in my mind that the church has at least the gospel of Mark in front of them when John writes. Mm -hmm. I think they probably have Matthew, Mark, and Luke in front of them when they write, when he writes. And so his readers know certain events. They, They know certain things have already taken place. And so John doesn't have to explain them. So for example, so John chapter three, verse 24, it says, 
It says, for John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. And you're like, well, what do you mean thrown into prison? Obviously, they, they know the story. In John chapter 11, there's another interesting story. It says, there was a certain man who was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Well, the story of the anointing of Jesus takes place in chapter 12. He hasn't told the story yet. One of the comments that you made right before you started this was John's audience, they had Matthew, Mark, and Luke in front of them. What, what you don't mean is that they were able to go down to Barnes and Noble and purchase copies. What you mean is these are oral, certainly there are copies of this around, yeah. but these are also, these are oral stories that are being told and retold. And people know this because that's what happens in these sorts of communities. It's an oral telling uh, community in a right. sense, because the majority of people are illiterate. Maybe so. Yeah. It's a, it's an oral community, but the gospel makes its way to our city. We mm -hmm. copy it and send mm -hmm. it off to your city. Yeah. So copies are circulating. There's no yes. question they're circulating. And they yeah. were intended to circulate around the Roman world. I don't know if we'd addressed this on our earlier podcast on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but people always try to, in order to do biblical interpretation, you need to know who wrote the book and when did he write the book and to whom did he write it? And we've kind of said that's not always critical, especially with the gospels. But the Gospels were intended very clearly, I think, to be written to everybody. Even mm -hmm. if Luke was written to Theophilus and is addressing this to him, there's and even no though question. Matthew's writing to Jewish people, yeah, it's, it's, it's for everyone. Jewish audience yeah. in mind, mm -hmm. it's it's intentionally known this is going to circulate the Roman world. Yeah, yeah. probably more necessary to know the audience when we're when you're dealing with the epistles and the letters. Yeah, it helps a little bit more, certainly. Yeah. Yes. You had mentioned uh, Mark a second mm -hmm. ago, and we mentioned Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark is the first gospel written. Yes. Everyone agrees that Mark is the earliest gospel, maybe in the 50s, maybe in the early 60s. John is written somewhere in the 80s or 90s, depending on where you date it, mid-80s to early 90s. So what's John doing to write? Why write another one, you know, another gospel 30 years later? Yeah, it seems, well, certainly he's writing to tell us about the Jesus story and, and from a different perspective. So that's going to be the key thing. But one of the things that's happening is John's also writing to kind of help answer questions, well, especially the gospel of Mark raises. Mark wrote his gospel maybe 25, 30 years earlier. And the people that John's dealing with are in Ephesus. That's kind of the, the standard thought John wrote in the city of Ephesus and the Christians in Ephesus. All right, well, they don't know what happened in the first, you know, 35, 45, 55, 60 years ago in Judea. So they only know what Mark's gospel tells them. And Mark's gospel was written to people who kind of knew the story themselves also. So Mark kind of circumvents some of the details. That means if you're writing, reading 60 years later, you're like, all right, I don't know what this guy's talking about. What do you mean here? So for example, Jesus in Mark chapter one, and this makes for great preaching, by the way, in Mark chapter one, and even in Mark chapter two, <laughs> he walks along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, hey, guys, follow me. And they jump out of their boats and follow him. And then he goes a little bit further and he sees John, that's Peter and Andrew. He sees John and his brother, James. Hey guys, follow me. And they jump out of the boat and follow him. You're like, well, how, why? You know, and it makes great preaching because you preach a sermon like when Jesus calls, you know, you follow. And I'm thinking actually it makes horrible preaching because people in your congregation are going, I don't know when he's calling me. What, you know, they, they might have this crisis moment thinking, I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. How do I know? Am I supposed to quit my job and follow Jesus too like this? And so I think actually it can become kind of dangerous preaching. But the idea of Jesus calls and you fall makes sense. But in John's gospel, we find out that Peter and Andrew and James and likely John were disciples of John the Baptist mm -hmm. in John chapter one. 
And that Jesus was walking around and was baptized by John the Baptist was kind of part of that crowd. And John the Baptist turns around and says, hey, guys, that's the one. Go follow him. So Andrew comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what's up? He's like, well, come follow me. And then Andrew goes and tells Peter. They knew Jesus already. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know what happened after that, but perhaps we would assume Jesus tells us, hey, guys, go back up to Galilee because I'm going off in the desert for 40 days. And eventually I'll make my way up to Galilee. And when I'm ready, I'll come get you. That probably is what's happening. So that when he says, hey, guys, follow me. It's like, oh, there he is. We told you daddy he'd be here. We're out of here. Been waiting for this day. The other thing, for example, is John's gospel has Jesus in Jerusalem a lot. And we'll get to this in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is not in Judea. And if Mm -hmm. you're familiar with the geography, Judea is the region where Jerusalem is in the southern part. Galilee up in the northern part with Samaria in the middle. So Mark's gospel is Jesus up there the entire time. It's not until chapter 11 that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And that's what we call Palm Sunday. Six days later, he dies. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden now we're like, well, wait a minute. If he's only been in town for a few days, why were they so angry with Jesus that they want to kill him? And now we realize, well, John's gospel is like, hey, he's been like three times, the first four or five times. The first time he was there, you know, he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And, And what? Oh, he's been in this city many times and he had an extensive ministry there. Kind of makes sense of some of the stories in the gospel of Mark. Most significantly now, the fact that Jesus was teaching in the temple and about the temple often. So Mark's gospel and Matthew, of course, also say this is the charge against Jesus. And when we get to the book of Acts, we'll discuss this. The early Christians in the book of Acts were being accused of two things. They spoke against the law of Moses. And now obviously would have to be the food laws. They said it's okay to eat food with Gentiles and eat the Gentiles food. And they spoke against the temple. Now the temple is not just a religious place. It's the center of their civic and social life. It's the center of everything about them. Mm -hmm. This is huge. So Matthew and Mark and Luke say that when Jesus was on trial, the charge against Jesus was that he spoke against the temple. He says something like destroy this temple in three days and raise it up. Well, John gospel tells us this and he puts it in chapter two. Mm-hmm. So it happened early on. So we have things like this, like m- kind of making sense of these things. John's gospel tells us, well, if they wanted to kill him in Jerusalem, like, why did he go? And, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And of course, the gospel of John says, well, because he went there to raise Lazarus. And the Lazarus story is really interesting because at the beginning of the Lazarus story, it says, hey, let's go to Judea again, Jesus says. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews there are seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there. And he's like, hey, look. Guess what? I, this is what I've come to do. And then the disciples turn around and say, and then Thomas turns around and says in verse 16, let's also go that we may die with him. Yeah, see, they, so John's gospel tells us, okay, why is he going to Jerusalem? Oh, it's, he's going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And yeah, it's not going to be good. Then that now helps provide the explanation. If Jesus's first encounter in Jerusalem in the gospel of Mark is in chapter 11, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Like, why? How do the people in Judea even know who he is, that there's such enthusiasm for Jesus on, on Palm Sunday? And Jan's answer is, he'd been there numerous times, and he just rose Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead a few days earlier, or weeks earlier, or a month earlier. We don't know exactly how much time has transpired. The Gospel of John also explains why the Jews brought Jesus off to Pilate. We know the story, but that's because we know John's gospel tells us, and that is the Jews didn't have authority to kill anyone. They were powerless to execute him, and they wanted Jesus to be executed. John's gospel also explains how Peter got into the courtyard of the high priest 
in order to deny knowing Jesus three times. In John 18, it says that John was known, or the writer of the gospel, whether the beloved disciple, the, the author of the gospel of John, he was known by the high priest. And so he went into the courtyard and he, brought, and he got Peter in also. Another example is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels. Now, again, remember John's gospel takes place mostly in Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke take place mostly in Galilee. So we would expect the fact that there's going to be very little overlap if everything in John's gospel is taking place in Jerusalem and everything in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is taking place up in Galilee. But one of the things that John does overlap, which is really interesting, if John's writing to people who already know the story in Mark's gospel, or maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's writing to supplement them or compliment them. He's writing to answer a few of the questions that they raised. Why is he repeating the feeding the 5,000? Like mm -hmm. that's in all three of the other gospels. We know it very well by now. But John repeats it. Well, John then adds that after he fed the multitudes, it says they wanted to make him king by force. And Jesus answers, ah, that's not going to go over too well. I'm not ready to be king yet. I'm not ready to be crowned king and accept the king. I have to go to the cross for that yet. And I'm not ready to die yet. And so, so Jesus then snuck away quickly. And of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't explain, well, why is he, why is, why is he leaving the scene so quickly? And John's gospel is telling us because they were trying to make him king by force. So the other thing then is John also has a detailed knowledge of some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. So for example, John has lengthy conversations with Nicodemus and with mm -hmm. a Samaritan woman. And after Jesus does a miracle, he has these long speeches after the Feast of Tabernacles, after the Feast of uh, the Feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include those. And so John does uh, include them as well. So that, those are some of the things that John's doing to supplement and maybe complement Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, I, I was going to say, I think one of my favorite things that John does, you mentioned earlier, Mary anointing Jesus in chapter 12, the fact that she's actually named now, because when yeah. you read about this in Mark 14, I want to say, yeah. uh, it's this it's this woman who does this, who she will be remembered, her name will be remembered forever, but yeah. then we don't name her. Well, well, what she has done will be remembered forever. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But she's never named. You're like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk it, about that in a little bit. Okay. Okay. I'll say it. Yeah. Yes. I, I just think that's just so beautiful because for some reason now we could talk mm -hmm. about it. Now it's revealed who she is. Yeah, yeah, I just think yeah. that's, that, I'll that's give awesome. you a thesis on that. If not uh, in today's podcast and our, in our next one. Okay. So right, I, I'm going to cut up. We'll skip that next question. Cause you basically answered it already. The, uh, we know John's not yeah, like the other synoptics. So, so you've talked about some of the similarities that happen, maybe how John expands on what's happening. What are some of the differences that happen? One of the differences that you kind of hinted yeah. on is how he expands things like John's gospel. Right. He has these long, what we would call discourses, like speeches or right. like it just is really filling in the gaps in terms of the, the number of words that are recorded right. in an interaction. So that's, that's somewhat of a different, but what, what are some of the other differences that you see? Yeah. So one of the big things, of course, is the fact that the kingdom of God, which is the most common topic of Jesus in the gospels. Mm -hmm is scarcely mentioned in the gospel of John. It kind of comes up in chapter three and once again in chapter 18, when he's speaking to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. For John, the kingdom of God is replaced with what, what we know of as eternal life. And even mm -hmm. in the Nicodemus account, it's eternal life. And eternal life is a misnomer a little bit because we kind of think it means one thing, but mm -hmm. it basically means life unto the next, into the age and the age to come. And then that age, it certainly is eternal life, but it's life in that other age. And so the subject of the kingdom of God then is developed by John under this context of eternal life that Jesus gives. Richard Balcom, 
one of the greatest New Testament scholars that we have today, says the real difference is that in the synoptics, the miracles that relate to the kingdom of God and to Jesus as the one who inaugurates the kingdom. While in John, they relate to eternal life and to Jesus as the one who gives eternal life. So that's a huge difference between John and the, and the synoptics, especially the absence of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, John, and I think I've made this come before, but John's gospel has ex- just as much a stress on the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. as it does on Jesus. Yeah. And so for John's gospel, the coming of the Holy Spirit or the parakletos, another counselor, another advocate. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned earlier, John stressed that Jesus' ministry in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus begins his ministry in John's gospel in Galilee and at a wedding in Cana, but immediately he goes to Jerusalem. And 80% of the gospel of John takes place in the city of Jerusalem. Basically, the only exception is when Jesus goes up in the Galilee and feeds the 5,000 in John mm-hmm. chapter 6. And Which this not- is the flip between Mark, where 80% of John's yeah. ministry takes place in Galilee, right. and, and the last week is taking place in Jerusalem. Yeah, exactly. That's right. John does have Jesus being in the wilderness. The other thing that's interesting is this. John has Jesus's ministry seems to indicate that Jesus ministered for three and a half years. There's there's four, well, there's three named Passover feasts in the Gospel mm-hmm. of John. And there's a fourth feast that says he went to Jerusalem for the feast. There are three feasts in Jerusalem that you would attend Jerusalem for, but it's likely that that fourth one is also the feast of Passover. And if that's the case, then Jesus's ministry was about three and a half years long, long enough to have four Passover, Passover um, feasts go by. And the significance of three and a half, of course, as we get into the apocalyptic literature, is the fact that three and a half is the period of time during which God's people suffer. The period of time during which they minister, but their ministry is a ministry of obviously associated with suffering. And it may be that John has this apocalyptic mindset in mind to say, yeah, by the way, I want you to understand that this is the first of the three and a half years of of the 70th week in the book of Daniel. The gospel of John also has no, well, we say it has no parables, but there's a few places that we're like, well, that's kind of parabolic, but it's not really a parable. But basically he doesn't have any parables. He doesn't have, he has no transfiguration. In John's gospel, there's no exorcisms. Mm -hmm. There's no casting out of demons, which in the gospel, Luke is a sign that the the kingdom of God's at hand, right? Because I say by the, uh, I cast out Satan by the finger of God. Um, So so there's no Lord's Supper. There's no communion. There's kind of a communion. In John chapter six. Let me say that again. In John's gospel, there's no Lord's Supper, but there's kind of is a Lord's Supper. Uh, yeah. And is that John chapter six? Yeah. In John six, uh-huh. Jesus had, kind of alludes kinda, to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, there's also no temptations by the devil. And there's also no Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Do, do you want to quickly define it? Because we don't see Pharisees or Sadducees in the Old Testament, they only pop up in the yeah. Gospels. And I think what Paul would refer to it once in, when he's giving his yeah. uh, credentials. I forget which book he gives it in. Like, just really, yeah, Philippians is right. Where quickly, what distinguishes a Sadducee from a Pharisee? The Pharisees and Sadducees, as we talked about with Warren Carter interview, are not religious folks as much as they are religious and social and political figures. They were the ones that Rome put in power, especially the Sadducees. They are aristocratic and they had control. And the Sadducees probably outnumbered the Pharisees. That's kind of a misnomer that we commonly think, oh, the Pharisees are everywhere. Well, they might be everywhere in the Gospels, but that's the Sadducees outnumbered them. Mm. The majority of them were Sadducees. The high priest was Sadducees. And Sadducees 
basically, once we define them, you're like, well, they're, they're not religious at all. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty secular. They believe in only the five books of Moses, but their primary belief basically was a life of, well, there's no afterlife. If you're really good now, God's going to bless you now. Oh, look, I'm really rich. I must be really good now. Mm-hmm. They lavished in the power and the wealth that came from Rome. And that's why looking at this as a religious debate between Jesus and the Sadducees is not accurate. It's mm-hmm. a political debate about kingdoms and power. So they were the high priests, they were the priestly uh, clan, and they were aristocratic and they were in power, but they were not very actively engaged in what you would call like Sunday attendance at church. Yeah, Saturday attendance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Pharisees were much more what you might consider to be religious individuals. But again, mm-hmm. we just have such a bad idea of who they were that it's not reflective of what they were actually thought of in that day. They looked at themselves as guardians of the scriptures. And now a lawyer, by the way, they could be Pharisees or Sadducees, but the scribes were the ones who copied the books of the law. And the Pharisees were the ones who felt it was their responsibility to interpret it for you. Because let's be honest, the, the law is a thousand years, 1500 years old. I mean, this is an ancient document. Mm-hmm. The law to, in Jesus's day is like something from the year 500 for us. Mm-hmm. That's a long time ago. And so they said, okay, great. It's our responsibility to tell you what the law says, but also to tell you what it means and how it applies. So thou shalt not work on the Sabbath means this and this, but it doesn't mean that. And so we kind of make fun of them, but they really were intent on fulfilling and obeying the law Mm -hmm. as conscious. But at the same time, they also fed into this honor and shame mentality and they had power and they kind of bought the party line. And that party line is you submit to me because I'm in power over you. And that's just the way it is. And you give me honor because I deserve it. I'm this noble Pharisee. I know the law. So they were much more religious. Now the Pharisees hated Rome. Mm -hmm. The Sadducees worked with Rome. I mean, they, the Sadducees benefited absolutely from Roman occupation and they, they didn't mind it at all. The Pharisees hated it because they had a strong religious conviction that only Yahweh is our God and only he's in power and only he should be in power and no foreign empire should be in power. But they also knew we can't do anything about it. Rome's in power and we can't stop them. And so what they thought was, well, the most important thing for the Pharisee was a temple because that's how we do the sacrifices and you know, we keep this thing going is with the temple. And so they tolerated Roman rule. Now, and they kind of benefited from it as well, but they tolerated it because Rome allowed them to have the temple. And then they went to Rome and said, okay, here's the deal. You can't do this, Rome. And we're not going to let any graven images in our city. You can't do that. Get these shields down. So they were very scrupulous with the law. Now, you have another group that we'll mention just briefly now called the Essenes. Mm-hmm. There's two more groups, but the Essenes, they were kind of Pharisee-like, but they thought, no way, this, this, this religion is so corrupted that it can't be saved. And they had, they said, we're, we're done. And they left Jerusalem and the establishment and went out to the Dead Sea area. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Mm-hmm. Though I'm not convinced that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by them. Okay. They were found in the, by, the, they were, they might've kept them. Although some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were definitely written by them. I, th- I wonder if the rest of it was a library from Jerusalem yeah. that was taken out of Jerusalem before Rome destroyed the, the city uh-huh. and then hid in the caves and they hid their own documents in the caves as well as a library from Jerusalem. Cause I don't think they would have produced all of those documents there. Yeah. Well, uh, isn't it believed that or the, one of the hypotheses is that John the Baptist could have been an Essene? I think that's been disproven a long time ago. Okay. I, I think it was out there. I say a long time ago. That's, a, that's one of those hypotheses that trying to account for the similarities because Jesus was baptizing and John the Baptist was baptizing the Essenes baptized. Okay. 
Matthew's gospel has a lot in common with the Essenes and their teachings about uh, the teacher of righteousness in the Essene community mm-hmm. seems to fit the Jesus thing there. And so people try to make a, a big connection with them, but more and more we're realizing that the dissimilarities between the two are, are greater than people kind of gave credit to for a long time. Okay. It, it's always this idea of how can we co- provide an explanation for this Jesus phenomena mm-hmm. without attributing it to the miraculous and the divine intervention type of Got thing. It. So, and, and some of that's re- legit, right? Some of the, the scholarly criticisms are, le- are legitimate, but sometimes it's hypothesis because I'm trying to figure out uh, to find fill a gap and those hypotheses get overturned over, over time there. So. Okay. Just, and then without, the, without explaining yeah. the other two groups, because you said there's five, would you the, say that that's the Zealots and Herodians? And yeah, would be the, the other Zealots two? would be the other group that, that's noteworthy, at least uh, brief, uh-huh. just very briefly. The Zealots were people who thought more pharisaical, and they believed not only do we not support Roman rule, we weren't, we're not going to tolerate it either. Mm-hmm. And so they went out and did everything they can to literally oppose Roman rule, including killing Romans and individuals and leading citizens who might have colluded with Rome and things of that nature as well. But the Zealots become a more powerful thing after the time of Jesus. Uh, They gain more and more and more power. What happens is Roman rule becomes more um, despotic. It gets more intense. And the conflict between Rome and Jerusalem uh, gets more and more intensified after the death of Jesus up until the 60s. By the time you get to early 60s, the governors, Felix and Festus, are horrible governors. Mm -hmm. Lots of conflict, lots of problems. And now you have an insurrection on your hand, and obviously the war breaks out in 66 to 70. So the thing is this, and, and the reason why it's relevant to say there's no Sadducees in the Gospel of John, though, is it might help us understand the context of when John was written. And that mm-hmm. is, the Sadducees who colluded with Rome don't survive the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Okay. So when Rome destroys Jerusalem, like, get out of here, everybody else, they kind of allowed a few to stay, and they kind of came back. But the Sadducees are gone. They, they just simply don't exist. And this is also part of the problem, and that is the writings that we have. So we have the biblical writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have Paul and the book of Acts making reference to Pharisees and these different various parties. But the majority of writings that we have from outside the Bible, from the rabbis of the mm-hmm. second and third centuries, they're all Pharisees. And so that's why we have this thought of, okay, the Pharisees are this big glamorous party because they're the only ones that they talked about. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we have such a bad idea of the Sadducees is because the Pharisees talk badly about them. Mm-hmm. The, rab- the, bin- the rabbinical writings are from Pharisaical uh, heritages. Okay. And, and I think this is important to yeah. parse this out because this helps us, puts us in the, the New Testament world and understanding this context. And it's, it's filling in the gaps of we're being dropped into these stories yeah. where we just have to assume we know who these people are. We're getting, we have no context from the old Testament, especially in the Protestant right. world. We don't read the intertestamental intertestament period. <laughs> and so we just, we have all these new characters now. And so I, we oftentimes wrongly make assumptions about who they are and what they did. And we'll, maybe we'll discuss some of this when we get to the book of Acts too, because I think some of that background might be helpful, like synagogues and things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Because I a lot of people, they confuse that. Like the, the yeah. synagogue is the same thing as the temple. Or, you know, yeah, exactly. And yeah, they yeah. worship in the synagogue. I'm like, no, 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 yeah. they don't. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Um, okay, so what are some other differences that happen between John and the synoptics? The synoptics relate a number of miracles of Jesus, pretty consistently doing miracles and raising the dead and healing people and things of that nature. The gospel of John doesn't kind of shies away from that, has seven signs, of course, than John. But as I mentioned earlier, there's no exorcisms in John's gospel. John also seems to provide some chronological issues. The cleansing of the temple Mm -hmm. in the gospel of John takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's in John chapter two. Mm -hmm. And it fits in John two because it's kind of a theological thing that's happening there. 
because he's equating himself with the temple. Yeah, and well, the because temple. he turned water into wine in chapter, it, it, in chapter yes, two, uh-huh. right? And so you have this maybe this bride theme going on there, and so that that could be happening there in, in John's gospel. Mark puts it at the end of the gospel because mm-hmm. that's the first time he's in Jerusalem. That's the only it's the only place you can put the cleansing of the temple is after in chapter eleven, and then Matthew and Luke probably follow after Mark's tradition of putting the cleansing of the temple late. So the answer is we don't know. I mean. If you want to argue that the cleansing of the temple happened earlier in Jesus' ministry, that'd be your best argument, because John's gospel will be more likely accurate in terms of the chronological sequence, because John's in, Jesus is in Jerusalem several times. He could have put mm-hmm. that anywhere he wanted. But we still have theological reasons why John put it there. And so it's hard to know, though. It's so, also interesting. I just realized yeah. this. I mean, I, I knew that John didn't have an all of it discourse. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have allusions to that, or you know, they have it. Uh, Luke kind of puts it in a couple of different places, but it's and that, interesting. And that's Jesus' speech on the end times, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and ultimately, it's it like with Mark, especially, and and Matthew, it's saying, hey, it's having to do with this temple being destroyed, and largely what's happening there in the Olivet discourse is saying, mm-hmm. this is the thing that's going to happen. And it's interesting because John doesn't even engage with that which does that make sense with it being written so much i mean 15 to 20 years later after the temple is that something that they would just wouldn't have to engage in for some reason that that john wouldn't have to include that it's just not serving his purpose for why he's trying to write a you could say because it's already in matthew mark and luke i don't need to include it Mm -hmm. b you can say well because it focuses on the destruction of the temple that's already yeah that's already happened that that's probably your best answer i think for john's gospel the land becomes the issue, not okay. the temple. So that's where you have this huge John 15 yeah. motif along with yeah. other things. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's the case now because see, not only, not only has the temple been destroyed, but you've been kicked out of the land. So I think John's gospel focuses more on that, but I haven't thought much about the question enough to articulate a better answer than that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Good question. Probably for next year when we go go through the new testament part two yeah there you go so all right uh, let's see the synoptics have only one passover john has several passovers Mm -hmm. john has a a very distinctive vocabulary the words truth and witness and world and abide and love and believe and light darkness life father son these are words that are seldom used in the synoptics but they're abundant in the gospel of john Uh, jesus i am statements in the gospel of john are not found in in matthew mark and luke Mm -hmm. And the seven signs, of course, are significant. So I, th- I think those are some of the key distinctions between the Gospel of John and the Synoptics. Okay. We, we mentioned last week how John includes these miracle things, but he never uses the word miracles. Right. He calls them signs because they're ultimately pointing to something else. Right. And so we have this miracle in chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus. And it kind of has this idea in there is implied that like the raising of Lazarus was this reason for why they wanted right. to, you know, seek after killing Jesus now. But it's interesting because the synoptics don't mention this miracle at all. Yeah. The sign definitely is pointing to his resurrection. You would think that the synoptics would mention that. Like, why would they leave yeah. that out? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. John's gospel portrays the raising of Lazarus as the final straw that breaks the camel's back. Now they're definitely going to have this guy killed. There's no way we can do anything about it. And I think the answer kind of you alluded to Mary washing uh, Jesus' feet and her not being named in the other gospels. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening is, is Lazarus and Mary are still alive when, Ma- when Matthew, Mark, and yeah. Luke are written. Mm-hmm. 
And because of that, their life was still in danger. The irony is, I kind of chuckle, because he raises Lazarus from the dead, think that's the final straw. We're going to kill this guy for sure. And by the way, and let's get Lazarus also. Let's kill Lazarus mm-hmm. too. And John 12, verse 10 says they were seeking to kill Lazarus also. And I'm thinking like, if you're Lazarus, like, dude, go ahead. I've already been through this once before and I know what's on the other side. Like I'm been there, totally done fine that, with got it. the t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally fine with it, right? I even think like, when Jesus goes up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. If you're Lazarus, like, hey, dude, I'm, I'm good, yeah. right? I mean, if, if you're in, in paradise with the father, whatever that might mean, mm-hmm. do you really want to come back? You're like, you know, if I come out right now, they're going to want to kill me too. Yeah. I'm going I'm to have all these problems. I'm good, Jesus. I'm good, right? No, well, just Lazarus. imagine this. He, he's with in paradise, like, so whatever yeah, that means. Exactly, right? And now he, he wakes back up again and he's like, dude, I'm laying on a rock. Yeah, like I'm laying okay. on the stone no, bench. And like, I come stink on, this is I've been dead for four days, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, he stinketh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have you seen the far side cartoons. I love Gary Larson and the far side cartoons. They have a far side cartoon with Lazarus. Okay. And he's at the electric company paying his electric bill. And he's explaining why his payment's late. Nice. He's like, <laughs> that's good. I was, oh, I was dead. He was like, yeah, okay. So <laughs> I think what's happening now is that Lazarus's resurrection. Again, it's a sign and the signs point to something greater. And of course it points to the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so I can raise Lazarus from the dead. I, therefore it's going to point to my own resurrection. But what happened is, is in John chapter 11, that Jesus was two days away and they report to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, oh, don't worry about it. The sickness will not end in death. This is John chapter 11, verse four, but for the glory of God. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister, Mary and Lazarus. And when he heard that he was sick, he stayed there two days longer. Mm. And then he said, Hey guys, let's go to Judea. And they said, well, rabbi, the Jews are wanting to kill you. He's like, that's okay. You know, we got to go anyway. And it says in John 11, verse 17, when Jesus came, they had found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. This is 11 verse 17. So in the Jewish world, the belief was that your soul remained with your body for three days. After three days, your soul departed and went off into the other world and resurrections were not possible. Uh, mm-hmm. We might call them resuscitations. And the idea was, you know, in the ancient world, you pronounce somebody dead and then like eight hours later, they're like, wake up and like, oh, what? you know, they didn't have as good a medical abilities as we have today. And so they realized that people can come back from the dead or what they thought was dead. And they had an explanation. That explanation was your soul remained with your body for three days. Mm-hmm. But after three days, too late. So even Jesus can't raise him from the dead now. And that's why the raising of Lazarus was such an issue because everyone knew he had been dead for four days. And now Jesus has done this bona fide miracle that can't be disputed. And the answer is, okay, let's get rid of Jesus and let's get rid of Lazarus also. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice that when Jesus comes into town, Martha comes running to him and Martha says, oh, Jesus, Lord, if, in verse uh, 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Mm-hmm. But she's not saying that as like, oh, I know if you can raise him from the dead, I know, you know, you can do it. She's resigned to the fact that like, I'm just saying a nice charitable thought because it's too late. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And look what Martha says in verse 24. Mm-hmm. I know he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. It's too late, Jesus. Even you can't raise him from the dead. The story of the raising of Lazarus is then so significant because of the gravity of the miracle, the significance of the miracle all right. So before we actually get into the survey of John, let's look at another background or a structural, it's kind of like the chassis of the, 
the the book, which is Jesus's death and resurrection and exaltation, because exaltation is a big deal yeah. for John, especially in that this theme of glory that pops up and being exalted. Yeah. So how does this play out, play out in the gospel? Well, we'll talk about this in an upcoming episode that Jesus is constantly going to say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then all of a sudden, of course, it's time for his hour to come. That's going to be the time for the cross. So John the Baptist introduces Jesus in the beginning of the gospel in chapter one, verse 29, by saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know, obviously, that imagery is picked up in the book of Revelation. Jesus mm-hmm. is, is the Lamb of God, and it's this Lamb of Slaughter. The key thing, then, was to understand that the role of love plays in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 15, he says, look, greater love has no one that, than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus then gives a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And so you take Jesus's actions, then, and you say, okay, here's what's going on, and that is, it's Jesus's love for his friends that takes him to the cross. And we see this in the parable of the, of the good shepherd, whether we call it a parable or the speech of the good shepherd. I don't think it's a parable myself in chapter mm-hmm. 10, but nonetheless, and that is it provides the background for the raising of Lazarus because a good shepherd does what he lays down his life for his friends. So now we see Jesus's love laying down his life for his friends in chapter 11. So we'll, we'll probably get into this more when we survey the text uh, maybe, but there's definitely like an old Testament influence. There's a lot of Old Testament. As good Protestant New Testament Christians, we know the New Testament and the Psalms and the Proverbs, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we miss a lot of stuff. Let's go back to one theme that is there, like the very beginning, literally the beginning, John 1.1, Genesis 1.1, you have this in the beginning motif. What, what's happening here? Why does John start this way? Yeah. So John wants us to see the gospel and read the life of Jesus in light of the new creation. This is huge in the gospel of John. You can't understand John without understanding the idea of new creation and Jesus' death and resurrection is a central part of it. So he begins the gospel by saying in the beginning, which says, Hey, there you go. I'm alluding to Genesis, but I'm not alluding to Genesis by saying this is Genesis all over again. It's Mm -hmm. Genesis fulfilled. Now, if you read the gospel of John, the first two chapters, it seems very clear and almost all scholars are going to agree on this that John frames what happens in the first two chapters in the, over the course of seven days. So the mm-hmm. first day is John 1, verses 19 to 28, because he says in verse 29, it says the next day. Mm-hmm. And then he says in verse 35, the next day. Now, as soon Which as is all see, echoing all the creation language of on this day. It, well, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. so he, he wants us to count the days. Mm-hmm. The fact that he says the next day and the next day, he says, oh, okay, so I guess what happened the first day must be the mm-hmm. first. He doesn't label verses 19 to 28 as the first day. But we know it's the first day because verse 29 says it's the next day. So that's so 29 is the second day. Mm-hmm. Day th- three is in verse 35, the next day. Now it's uncertain whether verses 40 and 42, 43, 42 of chapter one are indeed like the fourth day. Uh, John chapter one, verse 40, it says, actually verse 39, it says they, they came to where Jesus was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was already the 10th hour. So they come see Jesus and it's like, it's already the 10th hour. The 10th hour will be four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. It suggests that verses 40 through 42 then is like the next day because they stay with Jesus that night. And the next day they come to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, Andrew goes, Hey, Simon, you got to see this Jesus guy. Verse 43 then says the next day again. So now we have day five. And then this on chapter two, verse one says the third day. Now the third day is likely, well, I know it's if you count inclusively, mm-hmm. there was the fifth day, 
then there's a day off. And then there's this day, that's that now the third day. And so you seem to have a seven day sequence there, however you want to count that seven days. You also seem to have something in the end of the gospel as well, a seven day sequence happening there. But he's telling you the story of Jesus in light of the seven day framework. If you turn to John chapter 20, it says that the resurrection of Jesus happened on the first day of the week. And of course, not a big deal. He names it as the first day of the week. We kind of knew it was the first day of the week. It's Sunday, of course, Saturday being the Sabbath day. That's the seventh day. And so on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Right, no big deal. But then you skip down to verse 19. And it says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. You're mm -hmm. like, well, we already knew what day it was. I mean, they simply didn't repeat things like this because in oral culture, they, they knew it. They got it. They heard it. I, I understand. When an author repeats something like this, he really wants to hone in on it's the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, it's the first day of the new creation. What's interesting is John's gospel is the only one that says that the tomb was located in the garden. Mm -hmm. It says in chapter 19, it says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. This is verse 41 of chapter 19. In the garden, there was a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. So Jesus is being laid in the garden, and it's now the first day of the week. Well, let me kind of go back. On the sixth day of the week would be Friday, and that's the day he was crucified. Mm -hmm. And Pilate says, behold the man. Mm -hmm. You're like, well. Just like Adam. Yeah, right. Does John intend for us to see Jesus as the Adam, the man mm -hmm. who was made on the sixth day of the week? On the seventh day of the week, which is, would be Saturday now, Jesus is resting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's in the mm -hmm. tomb. And now the first day of the next week would be the first day of the new creation, I guess, right? I mean, that, is that what John wants us to see? Now, what happens interestingly then, and we know the first day of the week is important because he tells us a couple of different times. And then it says in the middle of the passage that, that Mary was standing outside the tomb, verse 11, and she was weeping. And behold, two angels, verse 12, were sitting there, one in white, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, well, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and behold, Jesus was standing there. And she didn't know that it was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Mm -hmm. Adam was the gardener. Exactly. He's supposed right? to serve and keep or protect yeah. the garden. That was his exactly. job. Exactly. He's supposed to serve and keep the garden. And the word serve and keep have reference to agricultural and caring for the mm -hmm. garden, but they also have priestly connotations as Adam being a priest in this temple, right? Yeah, so, and you would see that language in Leviticus yeah. and Numbers where that describes the function of the priest. Yes, yeah, that, that's right. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried, away my, carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said, Rabbi, my sheep hear my voice and they know who I am. She recognized him. So Jesus then goes into the, to the house where the disciples were staying. And that's what's repeated. It's the first day of the week. The doors were locked, but Jesus appears in the middle of the room anyways. Peace be with you, he says. And then he showed him his, his hands and his side and the disciples rejoiced. And they said, and he said again, peace be with you. Uh, as the father sent me, and this is going to become very important in John's gospel that we'll reiterate later. As the father sent me, I'm also sending you. And when he said this, this is verse 22, he breathed on them. Hmm. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, the word breathed on them, the word for breathe is the same word used in the Greek version of Genesis 2 verse 7. Mm -hmm that God forms the corpse of Adam, and then he breathes on him, says, receive the Holy Spirit, and Adam became a living being. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so the significance is this is new creation. And Jesus is the gardener in the temple. He's the Adam in there. He's resurrected from the dead. And he's the gardener. And now he comes upon the disciples and he breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit, and they become a new creation. So this is mm-hmm. new creation language. It's very significant. Yeah. Talking about this event in, in this garden, in this new garden, on the first day of the week, you have Mary standing and weeping outside the tomb, and, and she's the first one mm. to encounter this new gardener, the better gardener, the perfect gardener. It's interesting because when you look at the sociological makeup of the second temple period of, of the mm. Roman world, we've, we've talked about this before. We talked about it when we had Dr. Carter on. There's, it's a shame and honor society, but th- there's also this, you know, along with it, it it's this totem pole type culture mm-hmm. where you have certain people at top and certain people at the bottom. And so if you're in this context, if you have men are always going to be at the top, it's not going to be women for the most part. You might have one or two that sneaks in because of some other reason, but it's Cle- not because Cleopatra or something. Like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. But, you know, religious men, maybe strong business owners and all that, but you, you kind of whittle it down. And definitely at the bottom of this totem pole is going to be children and women and slaves. Yeah. And so yeah. you have this instance where, and, th- and this is just one of the beautiful things about the new Testament mm-hmm. and attesting to the, the resurrection is this is literally the worst person you could put to try to defend and make a case for you. Right. Yeah, like, why, have a, yeah. why have a woman be, be the person who's vouching you using their testimony? That's awful. Yeah. So women are mentioned in all four gospels as the first eyewitnesses, but Mary Magdalene's the only one that's mentioned in all four of them. Mm-hmm. So we know she was there and they all from that. That's right. And Luke says she had seven demons cast out of her. Mm-hmm. So she's a really, a really bad witness there. She's yet. not she's, in high esteem. Just yeah. alone that she's, she's a woman and let alone her, her, this past history thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So as, as we see this Mary account, then there's this weird instance that happens in chapter 20, where Jesus tells Mary, Hey, don't cling to me. Uh, that's yeah. weird. <laughs> he, yeah. He's just the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He says to her, stop cleaning me because I haven't ascended to my father yet, but go tell my brothers. And I think the answer is that Mary's clinging to him because she's so dedicated to Christ. And remember, and she is really distraught that Jesus, they, they took his body away. Mm-hmm. So she thinks he's dead, but she cares so much about him that she wants to anoint him and provide a proper burial and everything else. All of a sudden, now she's alive and she grabs on them. Mm. And I think perhaps the idea is, uh, I'm not going to let you get away again. Ah. And Jesus' answer is, I, I'm going to come back. Don't worry about it. I haven't ascended to my father yet. Once he ascends to the father, it'll be too late. You can kind of hold on to me then, but I'm going upstairs. But in the meantime, I'll be around. So stop clinging to me and go tell my brothers. And we have to remind people, while we know the end of the story, because we have 2000 years of history here the disciples, all of Jesus followers in, in Judaism, there's no concept of a resurrected Messiah. So right. the fact that they bought in on this guy and then they just watched him die, they're not thinking, okay, we just need to wait till they don't, they don't have this Christmas morning expectation where they just got to wait a couple of days for them to get their big present. Our, the last three years of our lives are crushed. Our hopes are crushed. We thought this was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And when Mary says, I'm sorry, when Martha says, uh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry, he's going to live. And she says, I know he'll live in the resurrection at the, at the last day. Mm-hmm. The Jewish conviction was that there'd be a mass resurrection of all persons, righteous and unrighteous, at the end of time. This is like the day of Yahweh. The day, of, Yahweh, the day uh-huh. of the Lord. That's right. There'll be this mass resurrection of all persons at the end of time. And God will separate the sheep and the goats, as Jesus might say. 
And so the idea of an individual person rising before then was inconceivable. Mm -hmm. So that's why the gospels, you know, we know that in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead. They're like, what does he mean rising from the dead? I don't know. You ask him. I'm not asking him. Mm -hmm. You you know, they, they were afraid to ask him. The idea of a resurrection didn't make sense. An individual rising before the end of time didn't fit their world. It was just impossible. It didn't fit their worldview. So it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And so now Martha's like, uh, Mary's like, uh, okay, I'm holding on because I'm not sure what's going on now. Don't worry about it. I'm gonna, I haven't ascended yet. I'll be around for a few more days. Go tell my brothers and I'll go before you. Mm. Yeah. Nice. So let's close the loop on the creation motif that we've gone through. Yeah. Just if you were to summarize this in light of this, how does Jesus's resurrection fit in with this creation theme that started in the first verse of the book? Yeah, so the creation theme finishes now with Jesus saying, okay, look, guys, the new creation's begun, and now you need to go out. And again, what's the whole goal of creation? The goal of creation was for God to dwell with his humanity or humanity Mm -hmm. to dwell in his presence and to be his image bearers. And to make him known throughout the entirety of the creation, the whole earth is full of his glory, as the psalmist says. Now, when the psalmist says the whole earth is full of his glory, they're looking forward to this fact. But that was supposed to be what happened in Eden. God would create Eden. Humanity would come into, into Eden. Remember, they were created outside of Eden and then brought in. They would then be his image bearers, and they would ex- be fruitful and multiply. And I think the answer is that Eden would expand. And mm-hmm. I think most scholars recognize this. Mm-hmm. Eden's going to expand and fill the earth. And so now what happens is Christ has come, he's provided redemption and restoration and bringing about the new creation through his resurrection. And he tells his disciples now, okay, here's the Holy Spirit. Now you go out and make me known to the nations. And this missional, the gospel of John is extremely missional and making Christ known. This is what it is. Hmm. So what do you think mission looks like? We We see this in the obviously the end of Matthew's gospel, where you have this great commission, which is, that's the one that we're going to plaster on our churches and whatnot, but it's this theme throughout the whole yes. new Testament. The whole Bible is missional in a sense. Yeah. And what do you think it looks like? Well, I think it looks like we tend to answer this question. If I can stop myself for a second, we tend to answer this question with like the ethics. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the mission is loving people, which is by the way, a phenomenal answer. Mm-hmm. but we need to define what love means because love is defined in the gospels as laying down your life for the sake of the other. They're so more, they're so much more valuable than you that you'll die for them. It's this sacrificial love that says you're more important than me right now. And how can I love on you? And when we do that, as Luke says, we are become sons and daughters of the most high because God loves those who are lower than him. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, Jesus says, they're going to know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, because I am love. So we usually stop there. We kind of make it this ethical thing and this moral thing that mission is, and it's telling people about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel and words and things of that nature. But I think the mission is creational and to bear God's image means to create the way God created. It means to subdue the earth and to subdue the earth means to help the earth become fruitful and multiply and create plants and harvest and feed and food for the creation. It also means to care for his creation. Mm -hmm. I think the mission of God is to do what Adam and Eve were created to do. That's why Jesus in the garden and this garden motif is so important. We were created to do what Adam and Eve were created to do. And that's to reflect God's glory and image in our life and conduct. And obviously in the ethics also. 
And the reason why I think that's so important, Vinny, is because when we preach that the mission of God's people is to go out and tell everybody about Jesus, then it makes people like you and me have an advantage because we do this full time. And somebody else can only do this. Well, they can be a witness at work, but maybe only on a break, you know, or they can be witness at work by inviting them to church. And then, and then we do the witnessing because we're the pastors. I think mission is everywhere we go, we make Christ known by ruling and subduing. And of course, ruling and subduing by caring for creation, by building bridges, by harvesting crops, by feeding people, by being an artist and creating and being creative and writing songs, all these things, making music, and then doing so as Christ does by laying down our life for the sake of the other. I, I think it's all of the above. Yeah. The concept of gospel is it's something, it's news that is proclaimed. So right. where there's a quote that is uh, ascribed to St. Francis Assisi, yeah, which right, if, right. if you, if you study his stuff, it actually doesn't sound like it comes from him. Yeah, so, right. uh, it, he's never quoted saying it, but it's, it's always preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Yeah. Um, it's something to, to that effect. Right. I, I actually don't think that's, you can't preach the gospel without words because by nature, the gospel is good news to be proclaimed. And so there has to be that aspect of it where you are telling people about Jesus. Mm -hmm. You are telling about the kingdom of God. Like you can't just get that by osmosis. However, one thing that I think we do, especially in, in the evangelical world is we get wrong going back to the, your idea of the image of God. Mm -hmm. We get that wrong and we make that merely an emotional thing. We say we're in the image of God. And, and so God has emotions, so we have emotions. And we, and we, we kind of make it like that. God is love, we are love, and we, we put it that way. Whereas if you actually look at what image of God would mean in an ancient Near Eastern context, you're literally reflecting the God to the world. And so to do that means when the world looks at me, I better be reflecting Yahweh in a way. I, I'm reflecting Jesus in a way that while they can't see him there, they're seeing him through my life. And, right. and that's where it's like, we need to take that seriously. It's not merely that I could live any way I want because I'm saved because I said a prayer. It's like, no, I haven't. That's where you're talking about the ethical duty. Mm -hmm. I'm living in a way where I'm literally mirroring uh, now being conformed to the image of Jesus, the, the new Adam, the new gardener. Yeah. And I'm doing that in a way that actually matters. So those, the way I live actually matters. It's not merely, yeah. I said a prayer and now I get to go to heaven when I die. That's right. That's right. So much bigger than that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I like that saying, whether it's from a Francis of Assisi or not, because I think the idea of that is that, in my life, I've earned the right to use the words. I think so much we think, I just got to preach the gospel to people. It's like, you don't have the right to preach the gospel to people because the way you've lived around them, mm -hmm. the reality is, uh, I actually kind of hope you don't preach the gospel right now because the way people look at you because of your act, your conduct, or your anger, or vitriol, or judgmental, or arrogance, whatever it might be, if you preach the gospel, it might actually look bad on the gospel. You profane the name of God. So we need to stop and say, hey, let, let me become a godlike person. And then people come to me and say, and ask me questions. And all of a sudden now I've, I've opened up the opportunity to speak. There's also another saying, a tribute, I think the Francis of Assisi too, they throw it on his lap, everything. Mm -hmm. you know, there's five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yeah, and in your life. And yeah, most yeah. people don't read the first four. I think it's the same, the same idea. But I also want to affirm that it's not just a sacred secular divide thing that only yeah. preachers and, and pastors are the ones who get to do mission full-time. Yeah. Everybody else does, does mission part-time. No, when you're teaching in a school, you're totally on mission and yes. you, you are imitating God um, by teaching and loving on children and, or adults or whoever it might be you're teaching. If you're building bridges, you're totally helping subdue the earth. Just, uh, I hope we're not, you know, 
doing it in the yeah. way that abuses the earth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have this weird consumeristic mindset. So like as a musician, that would be the thing. It's like, well, are you, you're a Christian and a musician, but you, you don't play in a worship band. Yeah. You have to it, sing Christian songs. Or exactly. Not, it's like, well, how like, can no. you do that as a jazz musician or playing in an orchestra? Or It's like, no, yeah. it, could, it could look very different. You know, oh, in and out is Christian because they have Bible verses on the bottom of yeah. their cups. Therefore, right. it's a Christian hamburger somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Fun podcast number two. It was not weak at all. W-E-A-K. Very strong podcast. Uh, so it's fun. So next week, what are we going to do? Are we going to actually start surving the text more? Are we going to look at yeah. more themes? Or we're going to we're actually probably going to spend a little bit more time than than necessary. But I think it's helpful to really stop and look at the first eighteen verses of the Gospel of John. Oh, good. And Very go, well. hey, what's what's this all about? This word became flesh. What's happening here, and the significance of that? And then we'll move forward. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be fun. All right, everyone. Hope you're loving this. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.